0: This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati. You lovers of words and tales. You who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at PendustRadio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.
1: Rubbish is a short story about Joe Nickerson's cross-country hitchhiking adventure as he's on his way to serve in the Vietnam War. As Joe waits for rides, holding a sign that reads, To War via L.A., U.S. Marine Corps, he recalls his draft-dodging father, his lioness of a mother, and how his youth in Catholic schools with hard-knuckle nuns made his transition to boot camp easier. Then, when the draft from a GTO passing at 70 miles per hour spins his sign, he has an unexpected encounter with a raven-haired woman named Rita. Francis Duffy is also the author of Bar Kafka, the captivating story of Joe Nickerson's adventures after serving in Vietnam, which was featured in season 1 of the Pendust radio podcast. A Yank, Francis Duffy lived abroad for decades. His initial journey was required, war, but thereafter he went willingly. He returned to the homeland for college, LA and San Francisco and later grad school. He learned in college that deracination, to lose one's roots, is how science labels the expatriation process. Yet, he doesn't see the process as one of subtraction, but rather addition. His roots are intact, enhanced via exposure to cultures unlike that into which he was born. This is a work of fiction. Rubbish. Written by Francis Duffy. Read by Paul Ulrich. The few who knew of my scheme advised against it. Violates common sense was the consensus of fellow Marines. Hitchhiking coast-to-coast under deadline pressure of orders to the Vietnam War is daft. It'll take far longer than you think, plus too many pervs on the road. And you'll be AWOL, they warned. I don't dispute their point about common sense. But the other items are arguable because not one of them had ever driven cross-country, much less hitchhiked 3,000 miles. In fact, none of them had hitched at all. Only hobos do that, they said. Like them, I hadn't yet hitched cross-country. But two years prior, I drove from NJ to CA and know it can be done in five days. I had told them of my plan to see if they could spot flaws I'd overlooked. They hadn't, so I ceased consulting. That was a month prior, in Memphis. I'm glad they're not with me now. Told you so, those classmates would say, if they could see me here in the middle of nowhere, waiting beside an empty highway, making zero progress as the clock ticks. The terrain is flat, save for me standing. All else is horizontal and belongs here, whereas I'm perpendicular and passing through. If I lie down, I will blend in and slowly vanish. Who in their right mind would stop for a hitchhiker in a place like this? How'd he get here, they'd wonder as their vehicle approaches at 60 miles per hour. At least they can see there's nothing near me, behind which an accomplice could hide if we aim to rob. The road west is straight as a diving board to the horizon. Gray-black asphalt, edged white and center-striped yellow, bordered with sagebrush. There are few vehicles going either way. More than once, I've stood astride the center yellow, looking down the diving board stretching miles west, about face, then east toward home. Whose idea was this? I say, smiling. No reply. Just insect buzz and gecko chirps that grow louder as the tire whine from a westbound tanker truck fades behind me. Earth and sky here dazzle. A horizon-to-horizon view of flat-bottom, battleship-sized cotton clouds sailing north across profound blue reminds me of why I nixed common sense. To be here. To do exactly this. Summer is an ally. Sleep outdoors or in moving vehicles. Meet kind people I'll never see again and whose names I may not learn while riding a few miles with them. Truth be told, Samaritans, plus chirps, buzz, and even tire wine why I didn't go on Greyhound. The isolation is a lure, indivisible from my chosen mode of travel. My logic's hard to explain, so when benefactors ask why I'm hitching, I just say, to see the land. I've allowed 11 days for this journey even though I know coast to coast can be driven in five. Extra days to savor come what may. Such as mornings like this, when the rising sun warms geckos, crickets, and me, all of us awed from above by white ships sailing across Mayan blue. I face east toward a distant curve from which the next Samaritan will emerge. Standing a foot outside the road edge white line, right thumb out but elbow bent while waiting, left hand holding the bottom of a two-by-four, tacked to its top is a thick rectangular poster board turned narrow side up. On it, I've bold-faced my fate. To war, via L.A., U.S.M.C. Tall, thick, all cap black letters spaced wide on a gray background for weary eyes approaching at high speed. Max legible, so drivers will mull my plight here, bound for a worse place. Standing too soon after a curve means vehicles exiting it won't have time to mull. Better to be on the far end of a long straightaway. So I jogged here from a turn-off on the other side of the curve where my last ride had dropped me off. They come round the bend and see way, way up the road on the right, a stick figure holding something. Plenty of seconds for drivers to approach and mutter, no way, on seeing my now outstretched right arm, thumb held eyes high. I hope one will relent as they draw near and read. Motionless, I look through their windshield as they approach, which seems to irk some. More than once, a driver has pulled down his sun visor so our eyes won't meet on passing, even when the sun is in my eyes and behind his. I don't smile, wave my thumb, or beg. Just deadpan. As though we both know he should stop. Mom would show me that look when asking if I'd lugged the garbage can out to the curb, knowing I hadn't yet. Border collies use that look on sheep. Rejection doesn't matter. I've been on the road long enough to know some will stop, mostly out of pity. White wall haircut verifies my pitch, adding to their guilt. I know I have a nibble when the driver eases off the gas while reading my typography, but this doesn't assure they'll stop. When readers speed up and pass, is it because they don't want to aid and abet fodder on the way to cannon? I wonder, but I haven't changed my sign. War veterans stop. They know better than me how it'll be when I get to where I'm ordered. They also recognize my appearance and sign that I'm exactly what both suggest. Their words as we drive are earnest and intense, more so than any clergy I've known. Like they're speaking to a younger version of themselves, telling me what they wish they'd known before going to their war. Often, our talks get so lucid that the war vet drives me farther than offered when he stopped, sometimes much farther. I'm unused to military veterans, much less war vets. Dad was a draft dodger during his generation's war. Rather than be ashamed, he'd boast, Only dummies get drafted, and the dumbest of all enlist. I enlisted, in part to atone for him. Not that he knows or cares. He deserted us when I was eleven after years of trial desertions, as though rehearsing his final exit. He never explained his absences, returning solely to replenish stay-away money. He gambled his pay and whatever he could pawn on horse races. Not to spend winnings on his family but instead to achieve escape velocity from us. From an early age my two sisters and I learned to fib about dad when we were with friends. Lies seem the lesser evil because the sin that comes with them can be absolved at weekly confession. But having a no account father is a permanent shame. Bless me father for I have sinned. It's been one week since my last confession. These are my sins. I stole a quarter from my mother's purse, spoke three lies, used six curse words, and had four impure thoughts. For these and all the sins of my past life that I cannot remember, I am heartily sorry. To avoid the need to lie, I got good at changing the topic of chats with pals whenever they'd mention their parents, especially their fathers. A wise-ass comment about another topic led talk from a sensitive zone. Inquisitors I couldn't dodge were not pals. Their mothers, unlike my working mom, wore pearls, didn't sweat, and were always home. They lived in large houses with lawns on four sides, separate bedrooms for all, and suited dads carrying briefcases. The Nickersons rented a roach-infested flat atop a luncheonette, seeing the meter reader more often than my binge-prone father. When I'd stop by a pal's house after school, his mom would grill me, spawning more sin for Saturday Confession. How's your mother, Joe? She'd ask as I sat and she stood in their living room. Her arms were folded as she looked down at me, awaiting her son to come down from his very own bedroom. He was changing from school clothes so we could go play basketball at an outdoor court two blocks over. Fine, I'd reply, hoping my pal would hurry the hell up. And your father, how is he doing? She'd not met either of my parents, but had heard buzz and sought more. She likely knew the facts, but kept probing, worried, I suppose, that, as lying trash from a broken home, I'd corrupt her son. It was tough keeping track of my fibs. One month, I'd say, he died, when asked about Dad, hoping to end the interrogations. The next, he's away on a sales trip. The look on her face after she'd nudged me to lie yet again was worse than any penance received from priests, bored by hearing my unoriginal sins. All because Dad is most at home in dingy bars. Bitter places brought from Ireland for the low end of the working class. Where barflies gather to boast of how they've scammed wives, employers, and other oppressors. He excels at mocking others, a tavern-learned skill he'd bring home with the stink of beer, ashtrays, and urinals. Dad spoke to his wife and kids from one side of his mouth, with his face at an oblique angle as though we were sitting on barstools beside him. He'd been raised Catholic, but I can't recall Dad ever attending Sunday Mass, much less Saturday Confession. Yet, in bed, he'd remind Mom that Catholicism forbids birth control. Come on, kid, he'd tell her, loosen up. His elder brother has nine kids, so Dad felt paltry with only three. I know more about my parents' bedroom doings than I care to. Our flat above the eatery didn't allow the luxury of me having a room of my own. My cot was flush against the foot of their bed, close enough to smell the sour on Dad's unwashed feet, and hear things I wish I hadn't. Hitching through a city requires that I focus on waves of vehicles coming at me after the red light turns green. But there's scant traffic and no stoplights here in the middle of nowhere. No curbs or sidewalks or storm drains or manhole covers, Or parking meters, or cross streets, or signs, or shops, or trees, or power lines, or inquisitors. Just asphalt, sagebrush, and me, waiting. If the road and I weren't here, you wouldn't know what century it is. The tanker truck is a mile gone, yet I haven't lowered my sign or thumb, charmed by the distant approach of my next potential Samaritan. The bronze beast coming at me through heat shimmer runs as though furious. Long ears are pressed back, their hairy tips thrashing side to side with each stride claws gleaming. The teeth in its wide mouth are gapped midway. Now a football field from me doing 70 miles per hour, yet it hasn't slowed even a bit. Bushy raccoon tails thrash from raked aerials on both tail fins. Morning sun glints from chrome baby moon centered on black rims. I can tell its front coil springs are stiffened with hard rubber spacers, jacking the nose higher than the tail. Jacked to make it look fast even when parked. Draft from the passing GTO spins my sign. Its driver could have moved left to avoid coming that close. I could have backed away from the road shoulder's white stripe. Neither of us did. She wants me to turn and admire her machismo. I stay looking east, my back to her eyes in the rearview mirror right thumb still out to an empty highway, suggesting her heap has passed unnoticed. Foam dice hanging on the mirror, I say. Or were those pom-poms? I know cars, having drag raced between my time in high school and the Marine Corps depot on Paris Island. My Chevy would have snatched three car links on that goat off the line at ATCO Raceway. Unless it had dual quad carbs, I'd take it in the quarter mile. We'd race out of the McDonald's on Route 38. It drew kids and cars on weekends during school and nightly all summer. Hot rods circle golden arches, their young drivers eyeing parked rivals. Glass packs and engine rumble announce arrivals. Half-eaten burgers are held before mugs turn to see who's growling. Being from Jersey, taunts show affection. Yo, Mick, you gonna race that slug at Atco Sunday? Bungul paisan. As a meatball business, NJ's diversity prepped me for the Marine Corps better than the recruits from rural states, who were only used to white or black. That, plus a dozen years with hard-knuckle nuns, made the transition to boot camp easier for me than recruits who were new to tyrants. On the night we arrived, my training platoon's three drill instructors boarded our bus, bellowing obscenities. Their intro triggers a stealth mode I'd honed since day one of first grade at St. Pete's Grammar School, when Mother St. Elias face-whacked me for an unauthorized smile. I hadn't yet set foot on Paris Island's fabled yellow footprints, painted on asphalt beside the bus. Yet, already Paris Island seems mighty goddamn familiar, like I'd been bussed from one gulag to another. Standing on those yellow soles at frigid midnight, Drill instructors shrieking, I'm thinking Catholic schools must be farm teams feeding the big league military. Dogma, corporal punishment, and the required honorifics instill obedience as muscle memory. Twelve years of obeying orcas with yes sister have readied me to obey smoky bears with yes sir. Seamless. I should be stunned like others as we were shoved, kicked, and shouted off the bus. I'm not. Cause the unknown ain't as fearful when you've already done a dozen years there. It's obvious that drill instructors and nuns share the same modus operandi. Different garb and gender, but same MO. Day one at Paris Island is a replay of day one at St. Pete's. That revelation eases my worry about how I'll cope with boot camp. Stealth, deadpan, and ventriloquism had become second nature since age seven. My M.O. evolved in response to theirs. Eyes and ears open, wear a poker face, avoid spotlights, use stealth, smile inwardly. I'm ready for Gulag 2. As I'm downshifting to maximum low-profile mode, other arrivals are getting what they should most avoid. Personal attention from our captors. Their sheer fury leaves target recruits stunned. Like lake fish bombed with dynamite. One poor soul has a drill instructor on either side, shouting expletives an inch from ears that likely have never heard even mild profanity, much less the bile they've mastered. Such is how it works. Stun a group with a few violent object lessons so nuns needn't waste time thumping all individually. Fish plus dynamite equals submission. The sooner young minds are made malleable, the sooner they can be regimented. Overt resistance does not but mark you for more personal attention. Nor do Franciscans waste time with spanking, paddling, or knuckle wraps. They face whack. I got nailed so hard on day one that my feet left the deck. As Mother St. Elias came at me, the pre impact sounds were the jangling of her Wastany rosary beads and classmates scurrying clear of impact. Her crimson mug and orca garb distracted me from noticing her left arm cocked behind its shoulder. Leg speed intensified the wax force, which swiveled my gourd hard left like a weathercock yielding to a storm. Her oomph knocked me out of file, so she yanked me back via my necktie. Age seven, and I had never been hit. I didn't cry, but not from courage. On a primal level, I sensed from mother's body lingo that tears would earn me another whack. I stood silent as she admired her handiwork, which tattooed my cherubic mug from ear top to chin. Using virgin flesh as a blackboard, mother had highlighted the day's message, do as you're told or get thumped. The lesson I took home is that nuns are mean cowboys. Clad head to toe in black, except for a white noggin box and platter-sized bib that hides bosom, ears, and hair, they were unlike any females I knew. They treated first graders as though all had been reared entirely wrong. My first words on getting home were, Mom, are you sure nuns are girls? You could say I owe them for having well prepared me for Paris Island. But you'd be wrong, because nuns teach rules, not how to break them without getting caught. That I figured out on my own, starting from day two at St. Pete's. Nuns throttled curiosity. You have been born into the one true faith. Hell awaits those less fortunate, they taught us. They outlawed toe-testing other waters. My sister, Kate, took an after-school swimming class at Camden's YWCA. Her homeroom nun punished her because the Y was run by Protestants. By sophomore year, the nuns had decided which boys were university material, pampering those who excelled at algebra and geometry. The rest of us were funneled into functional math, known as flunky math, and non-lab chemistry. College was seen as wasted on girls unless they became nuns who'd teach kids. Wasted on boys as well, according to Dad. College teaches the rich how to jip the poor. He'd say in a mean tone we knew was his bar voice. He'd sold fuller brushes and refrigerators at Sears and drove a lunch truck to construction sites. Dad thinks of himself as a slick talker. His schemes had one goal, a big score that would free him from his wife and kids. The man whose first and last names I bear achieved that when I was in sixth grade, stealing a $5,000 insurance settlement that mom had planned to use as a down payment on our first house. I worked weekends and summers through high school as a janitor at a Catholic hospital. Mom, a waitress, said mine was a dead-end job, that the military enables a recruit to retire at age 40 with a pension a hallowed goal for a shanty Irish. Her advice withered as the war escalated. National Geographic and TV were my portholes to elsewhere, and the Rose Bowl my undoing. Each January, I'd watched the game and its parade. Who played, won, or lost didn't matter. Seeing palm trees and short-sleeved shirts in the depth of NJ's barfly winters gave me hope of a place where summer doesn't die. Autumn chill for me is worse than winter's depth. The transition worse than arrival. The crunch of bone dry sycamore leaves. Hawk wind that waters eyes, hunches shoulders, and shortens necks. Birds gone south clanks from iron radiators in our cockroach flat above the luncheonette. Heavy drapes seal Victorian rooms from pale sunshine, trapping the scent of ham boiled with cabbage. People hibernate. At sunset, They reel in sidewalks and yank the welcome mats. Fall is when I most want to be long gone from New Jersey. We're taught that aliens want nothing more than to live where we do. No need to roam. Better can't be found. By graduation, I had no proof to the contrary. Yet palm trees and short sleeve shirts in January gave me hope. Summer ended, college-bound peers left, and younger pals returned to high school. Indian summer reminded me that cold was coming. Guys like me, manual labor, no college, no future, wind up in bars, as my father before me and his before him. How else to weather dreary winters? Date a Catholic girl, wed, procreate, get a mortgage, be normal. Mom had remarried that summer, a year after I, her youngest, finished high school. Her husband, a decent man who owned a bar in Trenton, moved us into a fine house. Finally, I had a room of my own. Still, with school done, our family changed, and my dead-end janitor's job, it seemed time to go. A neighborhood pal who shared my bleak future felt likewise, so we drove my Chevy to California via Route 66. Till then, I'd not been north of Hartford, south of Baltimore, or west of Philly. It took us four and a half days to reach the CA border, sleeping in the Chevy and keeping our eyes peeled for all-you-can-eat joints. Awake at dawn to peer out at empty cornfields, which we'd parked in after midnight. We felt like moon-bound astronauts, going where none we knew had yet been. No vehicles either way since the goat spun my sign. I hear its tire whine fading behind me. Then it ceases. Too abruptly. I hear what sounds like a far off grind, then nothing. Then something, like tomcats growling on an alley fence. Still facing east, I don't turn, but I do listen. I can't hear the tire whine, just the far off growling. I realize it's getting closer the same instant I recognize it. The goat is heading my way, in reverse. The gear whine's getting louder. She's backing up fast, which is not easy when the wheels being steered are behind the driver's eyes. An errant wrist flick, and she'll semicircle into sagebrush. Her speed speaks intent. Did my sign irk her? Or maybe my appearance? I'm dressed to ease driver's fear of hitchhikers. Short hair parted left and combed flat, white sidewalls. Belted, dark chinos, GI boots, a button-down yellow Oxford shirt tucked in a thin black necktie. My ditty bag is military green with USMC embroidered with shiny gold thread in large letters on both sides. I'm clean cut to the max. Perhaps she'd aimed to come closer than the three feet that separated the goat's passenger side from my right thumb. It still extended, me facing east to an empty highway. If I turn west, will she stop, give me the finger, then roar away? I lower my thumb, and turn. Those raccoon tails are thrashing backward. Her right arm is flung over the seat back, and her left hand is noon high on the steering wheel. Doing 30 miles per hour, the GTO's right side is parallel with the road edge's white line, showing her skill. At a football field's distance, I hear her radio. You're gonna cry, 96 tears. You're gonna cry, 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 cry now. You're gonna cry, 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 cry. Ninety-six tears. Thirty yards before reaching me, she moves the goat towards the asphalt's yellow center stripe. A friendly gesture. Howdy, she says, leaning right to look up through the door's open window. I don't move to enter the Pontiac. Perhaps she only means to ask for directions. Sorry I passed you by. I was having a crying jag. Your sign made it worse. How does one reply to that? I can take you as far as teal. That's 60 miles west. That'd be great, I say, reaching for the door handle after fetching my ditty bag. It fits on my lap with my sign top-down next to my right leg, standard pose on entering a Samaritan's vehicle. Foam dice hang from the rearview mirror. She lowers the volume on question mark in the Mysterians. Your sign's a killer. No insane would pass you by. She continues before I can reply. That proves I'm out of my mind. No, ma'am. I say, not wanting to ail her further. I wouldn't want my sisters picking up strangers in the middle of nowhere. I want to give you a lift because you're going to war. I passed you by because my husband came home from that same damn war in May. Minus a foot. I know when to be silent. Especially with females. Up at 6 a.m., my mother, Mary Nickerson, had roused, fed, brushed, combed, brown-bagged, and launched three kids to school by 7.30. After doing dishes and vacuuming, she'd walk to Acme Market, buy groceries, and return, pulling a cart to pot a supper. Then she'd bathe, don her waitress uniform, and bust to downtown Camden for work. 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Monday through Saturday. Home by 8, in bed by midnight. She'd welcome us home from Sunday Mass with a grand breakfast of scrapple, fried eggs, home fries, toast, and tea. Then she'd do laundry, nap after doing a crossword, or read George Simenon, then arise to cook a hefty supper. Mary never misses work, putting three kids through parochial schools despite a thieving husband and merciless clergy. Before welfare, before women's lib. But for her, my sisters and I would have been orphans and likely split up. Age 22 and off to war, I'd yet to meet a man, the equal of mom. Rita talks more than I do on the road to Teal. She speaks of hubby Paul's wounds and rehab. I listen, steering ahead rather than left at Rita, lest she be distracted from driving 70 miles per hour on a road signed for 55. She's returning from her latest visit to Paul's VA hospital. I wonder if she drives as fast to the hospital as from it. He's Army. Rita moved to Teal when he went to war. She owns a flower shop. I'd rather go to war myself than be stuck in a GI trailer park surrounded by wailing wives, she says. She won't drop me off till I've eaten proper at an orange-roofed Howard Johnson. Our meal stretches to two hours of talk as though we've known one another for years. Goddamn helicopters. Uh, Marines are ground pounders, right? Right, I say. She continues before I can split hairs. Paul was all gung-ho for choppers, said it was the coming technology. He wanted to be in on it from the get-go. I don't know where in the war zone I'll be going. I enlisted for aviation and Marines have choppers, but I've been schooled as a jet mechanic, so probably not. Ferrying grunts as a crew chief. His foot gets shredded by shrapnel when a grunt off ahead of him steps on a landmine. He'd assured me that flying was safer than grunt work, she said. I have no soothing words. She seems keen to vent, so I listen. We clicked when I learned Rita's maiden name, Grady. Raven hair, yet skin pale like a redhead's, Sans Freckles. She raves about folk music, assuming I share her knowledge. You mean, I say, like beer barrel polka? She squints, uncertain whether I'm joking. I'm not. Ah, jeez, no, she says, raven brows, arched, gray eyes rolling. Woody Guthrie, Seeger, Baez, Dylan. Are you Black Irish, Rita? Such is how Mom described coal-haired Father Gogarty, an odd priest in our NJ parish from Ireland. Unlike two fellow priests and the parish monsignor, all of whom were U.S. born mix. Could be, she says. What I'm not is long-suffering in the Irish way. You won't find me by the fire wringing my hands for a man out boozing. Mom, neither, I reply. Dad would come home after 11, happy, red-faced, watery-eyed, smelling of ciggies, beer, and urinals. How'd she handle that? Fireworks, every night. Nothing I dread more than anger at bedtime. Rita looks at me as only females can. Overcoat still on, dad tried to leave, mom would block the door. He'd quell her by sitting on the edge of my cot, rubbing my back. When he'd stop, I'd whine, rub, 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 like a dog nuzzles you when you stop scratching. Rub, rub, rubbish, he'd say. From now on, your name is rubbish. Mom lost her yell. Rita smokes camels, but not around Paul, for whom she wears a brave face. So, rubbish, why in hell are you and cross-country? Ah, uh, probably for the same reason you want to live in France, as you said. What was the name of that city? Provence. In Southeast France, it's a region, not a city. Like this here's the Midwest? Yeah, but better, light years, with monthly swoops to Paris. You've been there? Yep, one summer. It took that long for the culture shock to ease. But... It got good after I stayed in one place, instead of mad traveling like a tourist. Rita had me at a disadvantage. Where have you been? Only to California, two years ago. You went back to Jersey? She asks, her chagrin visible. Yep, after my stepfather died in a midnight auto accident, coming home. She doesn't reply, knowing I'll continue. Eleven weeks after their wedding, he owned a bar in Trenton. After closing it one night, he dozed at the wheel and his convertible went under the rear of a stopped 18-wheeler. Mom reopened the bar after burying him. She and I ran it, although I was too young to work behind the counter. She hoped to sell it as an active business rather than a shuttered one. I aimed to go back to California. Let me guess, she interrupts. Before you could escape, Uncle Sam called. Bingo. Now I know why you're hitching. Yep, I want to see the land. You stop at motels along the way, right? Nope, I say, pointing to a flyover road across from the Howard Johnson. Up there on a ledge below the road. Keeps me dry, and if I'm lucky, a prior hitcher has left cardboard as a mattress. Gets me an early start each morning. Damn, see the land indeed, she says. You know folk music more than you realize, she adds, although I don't catch her meaning. When we drove coast to coast two years ago in my Chevy, we gave rides to a few solo hitchers. I asked one young guy the same question you asked me about where he stayed at night. He pointed to those concrete ledges under flyovers. As he explained, I remember thinking, of course. He's young, healthy, and fit. Skip the Greyhound. Explore. In my case, orders to war are compass enough. When we picked him up, he admired my Chevy as he got in. But as we drove and talked, I I began to envy him. Sounds weird, I know. We're both going in the same direction along the same road. I'm doing him a favor by giving him a lift in a car I own. I'll drive it to where I'm going without the need to beg others for rides as he stands outdoors getting rejected by most. So why do I envy him? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Rita is elbows on the table, chin on her fists, looking me square in the eyes, a half smile on her black Irish face like she knows something I haven't yet fathomed but is pleased that I'm getting there. Anyway, I add, I ain't going Greyhound and I have enough money for motels, but I'd rather hitch. To meet kind folks like Reverse Rita. Bingo, rubbish, is her smiling reply to my long spiel, like she's further along a path I'm on and has paused to aid me. As war vets do because they've done and survived what I'm being sent to do. All through three months of jet mechanic training at Memphis, I schemed on this trip, right down to the size of my sign and the words on it. Other Marines warned against it, said it'd take weeks to hitch, but I know better. So you've been hitching from Memphis? No. After finishing jet school there, I went back to Jersey for a last look and to say goodbyes. I want to hitch coast to coast, to see all of it. But you drove all of it two years ago, right? She asks but it feels more like a nudge than a question. Right, I say, trying to understand my own words. I know from riding a bike for years around my hometown that driving familiar streets in a car isn't the same. You hear, see, smell, and feel more on a bike in the open air. That's one difference. And, Rita says, still ahead of me, there's something about the people who give me rides. People who are kind enough to give me rides, I should say. I can't explain it even to myself. Rita is still elbows on the table, chin on fists. I've eased away from the table a bit, back into our booth's orange leatherette bench seat, as I think aloud. It doesn't make sense, because most Samaritans, I don't even learn their names, and I'm only with them for a few miles. They're not like friends I've known for years. Yet somehow, she sees I can't get much farther than there. Not yet, anyway. I've got a long ways to travel before I ever get home, she says, although it's like she's half singing. I'm unsure if she's referring to herself or me, or maybe Paul. Her gray eyes smile from beneath arched raven brows. Rita drops me beneath a clover leaf, near a ramp up to the road west. During the drive from Howard Johnson, she teased, I never seen a hitcher wearing a necktie, dude. White walls, button-down collar, a gung-ho bag, and that sign? Jeez. It's the altar boy in me. She hugs me goodbye like a sister fearing for her brother. Get back to Paris, I say, bending at knees to look into gray eyes through the window of the door I just exited. Rita nails the goat, raccoon tails thrashing. At 80 yards, its brake lights flame and the raccoon tails drop. Gear change. Then back comes Reverse Rita. I glance rearward for oncoming traffic. None near. She stops exactly where she'd just been. This is you, rubbish, Rita says, reaching for the radio's volume knob. She cranks up a song I've not yet heard. Not Motown or Philly. Definitely a white guy. Not quite country. The voice sounds flat and nasal, but not Southern. How does it feel to be on your own, with no direction home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? She lets me hear a bit more, then nails the goat again. The raccoon tails wave goodbye, as does Rita's left arm thrust high out the window. Standing again at the roadside, begging for the next ride toward war. The summer sun is higher, the draft from passing vehicles hot and dry. Three indelible hours with reverse Rita, yet I'm only 60 miles further along. Smiling in her afterglow, but keen to regain, deadpan, lest Samaritans think me too goofy to aid. This story is copyright 2017 by Francis Duffy. This
0: recording is copyright 2022 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pendust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit PendustRadio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at RivercliffBooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.